The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon, Dead to Sin, Alive to God, Part 2, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So welcome back to our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Uh, This morning we're continuing now our study of chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In a sermon we've entitled, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. That's with reference to the general theme of this section of text that is found in verse 11. That we as those who have been justified through faith are dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Many people today forget that fact. We who have been justified, we, have been, we who have been reconciled to God by a work of his spirit are by his grace dead indeed to sin, praise God, and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we began this section of text last week as Paul endeavors now in this section of text to answer a very, very important question. This is a critical question and I want us to understand the question as we get into the text. If God saves sinners on the basis of faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, and there is nothing by means of our own effort that we may may contribute. In other words, there's nothing according to the law that we can do. There's no good works of our, our own that we can contribute. And if salvation, that salvation secured by the finished work of Christ alone, if that salvation is sustained entirely by grace and there's no law keeping that we can do no works that we can do to sustain our own salvation if God saves in that manner then does it really matter how we live does it really matter how we live our lives we're no longer under the condemnation of the law the law holds no sway over us any longer we're not condemned under the law we're under the saving operations of God's grace Can't I then, if the law has no condemning bearing on me, if the law's demands toward me have been completely satisfied, then can't I simply live as I please? Can't I simply live as I want to live, without regard to sin? Can't I live my life without regard to sin, so that grace may abound? Haven't I been freed from any obligation to obey the moral law of God. I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. You can see the problem that's being introduced. If you listen to many who preach and teach today, if you go to many churches today, many of them meeting at the same time that we are, it would appear that the obvious answer to that question is a resounding yes. Well, of course you can. God's grace has forgiven you of your sin. You can live however you want to live. You should try Right? A, a Christian should, should make an effort to live a holy life, should make an effort to do better. But a vast majority of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ today would quickly claim eternal salvation by God's grace while giving no evidence whatsoever of a life transformation by God's grace. Wide, wide, wide is that gate and broad is that way which leads to destruction. There are many, many, many who go in by it. The basic heresy associated with that notion of grace comes dressed up in a host of ways. We see it in a multitude of ways. And we've talked about these ways before. Whether it's hyper-grace, the hyper-grace movement, whether it's cheap grace, many of you heard it coined that way, or easy believism or carnal Christianity. No matter how that heresy is dressed up, the basic premise that ultimately lies underneath all of those perverted and corrupted notions of God's grace, the basic heresy is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. From anti, against, and namas, meaning law, antinomianism is against the lawism. It's against the lawism. Meaning that Christians pertaining to those who profess faith in Christ, that Christians are freed from any obligation to obey the moral law of God. They are Christians, even if they determine 
in themselves to continue to live in an unbroken, in an unchallenged pattern of sin. They're still Christians because they have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Many professing Christians today undiscerningly or unknowingly arrive at that kind of theology along various paths. And whether they're by their words or most often by their actions, they give evidence of having embraced that heresy. Many Christians today, professing Christians, wouldn't say those words out of their mouths, but with their lives, they have embraced that notion of God's grace, that corrupt idea of grace. Call it what you want. The grace of God ultimately means that ongoing sin in my life simply doesn't matter. I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. Call it what you want, but the sin in my life, as the sin in my life continues to abound, I have no concern whatsoever because the grace of God simply abounds to me all the more. Thank God for grace, they would say, right? The gospel has left me hopelessly bound in sin, but thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. In other words, grace means to them a blanket forgiveness. Grace means that all my sin is swept under the rug and I can simply live as I want to live. I'll do my best. Lord knows I'll try. But at the end of the day, I'm bound in sin. Praise God that his grace covers it all, right? And what have they done? It's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding. It's a heresy that Paul is correcting in our text today in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It's a misunderstanding of grace. It's a misunderstanding of grace that was foisted upon the early church who espoused a doctrine of justification by faith alone. They would say, if you preach justification by faith alone apart from works, if you preach a justification that includes no contribution whatsoever by the, by the sinner, and aren't you espousing license to sin? Aren't you preaching that you can live however you want to live? And Paul is saying in this text, no. No. It's, um, what's going on here is a, a devastating, a deadly misunderstanding, but it's a, it's a deadly divorce. There's a deadly divorce that is taking place. Grace means blanket forgiveness, but that grace that they conceive of is divorced from the power of God to transform the life of a sinner. Grace is divorced from its power. And what you get is a cheap sham counterfeit. It's a devastating, a deadly misunderstanding of grace. We have been set free, brothers and sisters. We have been set free. Praise God. But we have not been set free. We have not been set free from any obligation to obey the moral law of God, we've been set free from the bondage of our sin. We've been set free from the dominion of sin so that we may obey the moral law of God, and we do that with joy. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, listen. Paul said, you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What are, they, what, are you, what are you doing when you love your neighbor? You're fulfilling the law. What are you doing when you obey God? You're loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're fulfilling the law. You're obeying God. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men who believe this about grace, right? As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak or as a covering for vice, for sin, but rather using your liberty as bondservants of God. That's how we're to use our liberty. We've been set free from sin's dominion to serve the Lord Christ. We have been set free from sin's mastery. We've been set free from our slavery to sin so that we can be slaves of righteousness, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen? You desire to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the Lord in grace fulfills that desire of your heart 
by giving you power through grace, power through his spirit to pursue righteousness, to pursue obedience to God. And that's what we as Christians want. His commands are not burdensome to us. We desire to obey the Lord. Romans 6.1, thinking of all these things, right? Thinking of all these things, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Every thinking, believing Christian would say, certainly not. Absolutely not. God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? The grace of God is not only that through which we are forgiven of sin. The grace of God is that through which we are to be victorious over it. The grace of God is through that which we triumph. The grace of God is at the very heart the very heart of the new covenant. Listen to this from Ezekiel 36. We read this last week. Listen to what God says that he will do in the believer through grace when someone turns to Christ in faith. Listen, God says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Praise God for forgiveness, right? Praise God for a clean heart and clean hands. He, God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. He makes of us a new creation. Praise God. I will put my spirit within you. We become a dwelling place of God by the spirit. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That sounds like a, a rock solid promise, doesn't it? <laughs> what God is going to do. How is that possible? We're sinners. We're sinners. How is that possible? Grace. Grace. The grace of God to indwell us with his spirit. The grace of God to give us a new nature. The grace of God to forgive us of all our sins, certainly. The grace of God to make of us a new creation. The grace of us to cause the grace of God to cause us to walk in his statutes. It's the grace of God that we will keep his judgments and do them. How is it all possible? It's all possible through grace. The grace that merely forgives sin. No, the grace that comes with the power to transform a life. It's that grace of God that teaches men to deny ungodly lusts. Do you see? The moral law of God, brothers and sisters, is an eternal obligation. The moral law of God is an eternal obligation. We will, <laughs> we will rejoice in eternity to completely and fully obey it without sin forever. It will be the joy of the Christian in eternity that in eternity now glorified, conformed to the image of Christ that we cannot any longer sin. Not able to sin any longer. Praise God. And what does that look like? That looks like in every way, in every form, in every fashion, obeying the law of God. The moral law of God is an eternal obligation to those who are creatures who have been created by God. It governs the relationship between the creature and the creator. He is our creator. We are the creature forever. The moral law of God governs the relationship between us. Do you see? It will always be a governing, a governed relationship. He's the creator. We're the creature. It's a transcript. The law of God is a transcript of the very nature and being of God. It's a transcript of him who is holy and righteous and infinitely good. And it will be the everlasting joy of the glorified Christian, set free not only from the reality or the penalty of sin, set free not only from the power of sin, but also at that point fully and finally set free forever from the presence of sin to obey God's perfect law in eternity. All to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his grace. Shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? Can you see how that wrecks it all? Right? How it wrecks it all. Can you see that, how that heresy wrecks it all? Can you see how many embracing that heresy would be deceived and would be deceived uh, to destruction, twisting the scriptures to their own destruction? Grace abounds such that we will not continue to live in sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, grace abounds when we cease 
continuing to live in an unbroken and unchallenged pattern of sin. Grace abounds such that we will not continue to live in that way. The absolute absurdity of the thought that a Christian could continue in that kind of pattern of sin, the absolute absurdity of the thought lies in the fact that we who have been justified by faith have died to sin. That's what Paul is saying there. We have died to sin. We could say that it is an impossibility because we have died to sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, through God's grace, we who are united to Jesus Christ through faith, we have died to sin in our union with him. I want us to think about that. We introduced that concept last week. Paul says in verse 10, the death that he died, the death that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died not simply for sinners in our place or on our behalf, but the death that he died, he also died to sin once for all. Once on the cross for all those who would put their faith and trust in him. For all those who have been united to him through faith. Jesus Christ died to sin once for all. The life that he now lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. Likewise, this has implications for the Christian life. Right? What we believe, how we think, should impact how we live, how we conduct ourselves, what we do. Likewise, verse 11, if you believe these things, if you've embraced that by faith, then you also, by virtue of your union with Christ through faith, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead yourself indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Jesus Christ has died to sin once for all, then on what basis can you and I then say, or can you and I then reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin? How can we then reckon ourselves to be dead to sin? Jesus Christ was the one who died. Jesus Christ died to sin once for all. How is it that I am to reckon myself then dead to sin? It's because of our union to Jesus Christ. As we went through Romans chapter five and we talked about federal headship, representation. Jesus Christ is our representative. Jesus Christ is our federal head. We are united to him through faith and in union with him. When Jesus Christ died to sin once for all, he died to sin for us, died to sin on our behalf, and we died to sin in him. We explained last week how Paul means to say that we have not only been set free from the penalty of sin, and Jesus Christ having paid that penalty for us. But we have also been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free from the dominion of sin. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died for us at the cross, he not only subjected himself to our punishment, a punishment that he paid in full, he also subjected himself to sin's power. He also subjected himself to the dominion of sin that sin exercises over us, namely through death. Jesus Christ subjected himself to that dominion and so the death that he died, he died to sin's dominion, as it were, once for all of us. So that, so that when Jesus Christ then was raised from the dead and raised in glory, raised in power, to die no more, behold, he lives forever, amen. He broke the power of sin, didn't he? He broke the power of death. He broke the power or the dominion of sin that is exercised through death. He vanquished the grave. He became triumphant. He conquered death, do you see? Conquered sin, conquered the grave. And in his death to sin, in his death to sin's dominion, all who are united to Christ by faith also died to the dominion of sin in him. They died to sin in him, forever free. That's where our freedom comes from, right? We died to sin in him. He set us free, forever free from slavery to sin, forever free from the dominion of indwelling sin. If you're a Christian here today, you've turned from sin in repentance, right? You have turned, what Paul's talking about here is not 
is not a person who is waging war against sin, who despises his sin, who's fighting his sin, who's depending upon the spirit of God, calling out to the Lord for help, who is endeavoring after new obedience, who's had a change of mind about his sin, right? Believes that his sin, he despises his sin, thinks about his sin the way that God thinks about his sin. Paul's not speaking of that person. Paul is speaking of the person who professes to be a Christian who lives with an utter disregard for sin, who's not really concerned all that much about his sin. He may get guilty over his sin every now and then because he knows it's wrong. He feels the the sense or the weight of shame associated with it. The spirit of God is in the world, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You may feel conviction over his sin, but ultimately makes provision for sin, ultimately will continue in that pattern of sin. That's not who Paul is speaking about here. Paul is speaking about the professing Christian who continues to live in an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of sin with a disregard for sin, not fighting. If for one moment you're ever tempted to lay aside or to set aside the law of God in the name of grace, consider for a moment how crushingly non-negotiable the demands of God's perfect law really are. Consider for a moment how non-negotiable the law really is. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, Isaiah says that it pleased God to bruise him. Pleased God to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect, blameless, sinless son of God subjected himself in death to uphold the law of God. We don't earn heaven by obeying it, but those who are his hunger and thirst to live by it for the glory of God. It is inconsistent, incongruous with a believer's profession of faith for that one who believes to continue in a pattern of ongoing unchallenged sin. Our union with Jesus Christ in his death makes it an absurd thought makes the very thought of it absurd. The gospel of Jesus Christ delivers men from their sin. What shall we say then, verse one? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now Paul has posed the question. He poses the question in verse one. Then Paul gives us the answer, verse two. Now in verse three, Paul begins his explanation. Okay? In support of his premise that it would be absurd to think that we who have died to sin could live any longer in it, Paul now builds his case, builds his argument on a believer's union with Jesus Christ. And in order to illustrate that union with Jesus Christ, Paul refers to the meaning and significance of baptism. Right? So Paul now is going to use an illustration, if you will, an illustration of the believer's baptism. And he's going to build his case upon the meaning and significance of a believer's baptism. What a believer professes his baptism to mean. Paul is going to build his case on that. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know? Here's the explanation. We've got the question, we've got the answer, now the explanation. Or do you not know... That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should continue living in our sin. No. (laughs) Even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see the point that Paul's making, right? Do you not know? Do you not know, verse 3? In other words, Paul is going to build his case on facts that should should have been very well known to the believers at Rome, to the saints at Rome. This fact, this understanding, this idea, this concept should be very well known to the saints at Cornerstone also. We should know these things. We're going to see that as we walk through the text, okay? Do you not know? Paul assumes that we're familiar with the ordinance of baptism, We've got baptism service coming up. By God's grace, uh, we have a lot of baptism services around here, which we're very thankful for. Paul assumes that we're familiar with the ordinance of baptism. Paul assumes that we're familiar with all of the spiritual realities 
that baptism represents. That should be a basic fact, if you will, that Christians have been taught and that Christians understand. As many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. So Paul now then, based upon our understanding, based upon that, Paul now appeals to the meaning and the significance of believer's baptism. When you, turn, think with me, think with me. When you turn from your sin and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you made a profession of faith, didn't you? You said, I want Jesus Christ. I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to live that life anymore. I've made a wreck of my own life. I continue to sin. I'm an offense to God. I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus Christ. I want Jesus Christ. I want to live for him. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to worship him in heaven. I want to be with the people of God. I want Christ, right? That's your, that's your profession of faith. The, 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 the heart of a genuine Christian cries out for him. So Paul, when you turn from sin to make that profession of faith, you said that by faith, certain things were true of you. You embrace these truths in faith. You said, these things are true of me. You made a profession of faith. As many of you, of you as were baptized, as many of you as were baptized, you determined to confess those realities and to publicly profess those realities, those truths, through the symbolism of baptism. And we talk about that when we baptize a new believer, don't we? You've been buried with Christ in baptism. You've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, straight out of Romans 6, right? We, are, we understand those realities. We have died to sin. We have died to self in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his death. We have died to sin and died to self. We're buried with him. In Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are raised from the dead, as it were, to walk as a new creation in Jesus Christ, to live for him, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us and gave himself for us, right? You determine to confess those realities and public, publicly profess those realities through the symbolism of baptism so that those who follow a profession of their faith in Jesus Christ with baptism... Those who follow Jesus Christ with faith in our baptism are assumed to believe what their baptism signifies, right? Paul is assuming that when you're baptized and you're buried with him in baptized baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, Paul is assuming that you believe what baptism signifies to be true of you. You believe what baptism says about spiritual realities present in your own heart, okay? Paul says, so Paul says, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus. Now here's where we run into a very important interpretive question. It's a question that we have to ask, and it's a question that we have to answer. To answer the question wrong is devastatingly destructive, to answer the question wrong has led untold countless numbers, myriads, to hell. To twist this scripture is to twist it to your own destruction. It's a question that we have to answer in order to understand Paul's point. When referring here to our physical or our water baptism, what does Paul mean when he says that we were baptized into Christ Jesus? On the surface, that may seem a little superfluous, but it is anything but. Or what does Paul mean that we were baptized into his death? What does Paul mean by that? The key to understanding the question lies in the meaning of that little word, into. What is the meaning of that word? How we understand this is exceedingly important. It's the Greek word, ace. And that word has a relatively wide semantic range. It can be translated in a number of ways. The word can be translated into. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. If you're reading an English translation of your Bible this morning, it's most likely that the English translation translates the word just that way, okay? That little word can be translated into. But it can also be translated to, toward, for, with reference to or with respect to, including many other ways in which it could be translated. The word has a wide semantic range. So as you can imagine, many would be inclined to translate the word in keeping with whatever theological tradition they're a part of, right? 
you come to this text and you've got a particular theological agenda, you have a particular theological tradition, then when you come to Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it's all too tempting, all too easy to simply see in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, an interpretation that fits together with your theological tradition. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were Presbyterian and therefore Pado baptist you believe that baptizing infants is biblical, believing sacramentally that the infant children of believers are incorporated into Christ at their baptism, then you will understand Romans chapter 6, verse 3 in that particular way. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 becomes interpreted in a way that is in harmony with your theological tradition as a Presbyterian. Now, I'm going to submit to you this morning that it's not interpreted in a way that theologically harmonizes with the text of Scripture. But there is a, there's a temptation to see in the text an interpretation that accords with your theological heritage, whatever your theological tradition is. Westminster Confession, listen to this, from the Westminster, chapter 28, article 1. Baptism is a sacrament, means, meaning that it confers grace. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, a sign and seal of his engrafting into Christ. In other words, it sounds to me like what the Westminster is espousing is that when infants are baptized, they're not only baptized into the visible church, it represents their engrafting into Jesus Christ. And we'd have to ask the question, uh, wouldn't it seem to you, to me, that the Westminster has gone a little too far, a little too far in their definition of baptism, right? If you were Roman Catholic, if you were Roman Catholic, you would see Romans chapter 6 as teaching that baptism unites us to Christ. We are united to Christ through baptism. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1227, listen. The baptized, those who are baptized, who are they baptizing? They're baptizing infants, mostly, right? The baptized have put on Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, baptism is a bath that purifies a bath that justifies, and a bath that sanctifies. Now, the implications of this are staggering. The implications are staggering, and the implications are potentially damning. This is not a light matter, right? It's not a light matter. So does Paul mean in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, that we are brought into union with Jesus Christ through baptism? What does Paul mean when Paul says, we were baptized into Christ Jesus? Verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us was, were baptized into Christ Jesus? And the issue is the translation of that little word into. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Was it at baptism that we entered into Christ? Was it at our baptism that we entered into his death? Was it at baptism that we were brought into union, vital union, spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Is baptism the means through which a sinner is united to Jesus Christ? You see the problem. I right? see the, the importance of the question. Union with Jesus Christ is a critical doctrine. And listen, our understanding of union with Jesus Christ is going to inform the way that we look at the rest of Romans chapter 6, the way that we look at Romans chapter 7, and the way that we look at Romans chapter 8. In fact, our union with Christ impacts the way that we see the Bible. It has everything to do with so many theological truths. It has much to do with how we live our Christian life. When are we united to Christ? How are we to understand Romans chapter 6 verse 3? How are we to understand the text? How are we to answer? How are we to answer the question? Do we go to our theological tradition? No. Where do we go? We go to the text. <laughs> we go to the text, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. How are we to answer the question? We go to the text of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1. Hang in there with me now. Keep your thinking caps on. Um, 
and think through this with me so that you'll have a clear understanding in your own heart and mind as to the answer to the question so that going forward we'll know exactly what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul actually speaks of our union with Jesus Christ in one sense as being eternal. There is a sense in which our union or our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. Look there at verse 3. Verse 3. Blessed or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So God is to be praised. He's to be praised for having blessed us with every spiritual blessing or every blessing pertaining to or belonging to the Spirit, saving us in Christ or in union with Christ. In union with Christ, God has given us every blessing associated with life in the Spirit. Do you see that? We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in our union with Jesus Christ. And notice, notice, he has given to those given those to us in Christ, in union with him, not simply through the agency of Jesus Christ because of him, but by virtue of our being identified with him, represented by him in union with him. Do you see? Those blessings are given to us in Christ. Make sense? Now notice verse four. That is just as he chose us or he elected us in him in our baptism no he elected us in our baptism no arminians he elected us at our profession of faith because of our no <laughs> no he just as he chose us he chose us in him in union with him identified with him he chose us elected us in him when before the foundation of the world before time began in other words God elected his own for salvation, having considered them or having reckoned them in union with Jesus Christ from before time began. He elected them by virtue of their decreed identification with his own son. So that, verse 4, so that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in, in union with the beloved. You see? God's elect are chosen by virtue of their identification with Christ in eternity. They are chosen in union with him. And that union expressed in the decrees of God in eternity. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. A couple of books to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 1. The question stands now. The question stands. When is it that we are found to be in union with Jesus Christ? When is it that we are found to be in union with Jesus Christ? Paul encourages Timothy here in chapter 1 that God has not given us a spirit of fear. But God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. He's encouraging and exhorting Timothy. Therefore, Paul says this in verse 8. Verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. It is God, verse 9, who has saved us and has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to anything that we've done, but according to his own purpose. There's election. And according to his own grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus, in identification with Christ Jesus, when? Before time began. There is a sense in which grace was poured out, as it were, in deposit, ready, as it were, for us who are in union with Christ. At the end of verse 9, in Jesus Christ, or in union with Christ. What did Paul say at the end of verse 9? Paul said that grace was given to us in union with Jesus Christ before time began. That's what the text says. 
grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And that was all according to God's own purpose, God's decree. So God saved us and he called us in time. He calls us in time according to his purpose, that's election, and according to grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's what the text is saying. There was a sense in which God considered us as united to his son, even from eternity. God considered us in eternity as he identified us with his son. And identifying us with his son is how God, or is the basis on which God determined to set his electing or predestining love upon us. It was always in his son, in his son, in his son, in our identification with him. It doesn't happen apart from our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, listen, baptism is not the moment when we were united to Christ. Baptism is not the moment when we were united to Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which we were considered by God or reckoned by God to be united to his son in eternity, in eternity. And so think with me now, think. Draw the connection, the good and necessary inference. If all of those spiritual blessings, including our election, justification, adoption as sons, if all of those spiritual blessings are given to us by virtue of our union or our identification with Christ, and that union was considered in the decrees of God before time began, then when are those blessings conferred upon the believer in time? Think, think about the question with me and think about the implication, right? If all of those spiritual blessings, including our election, justification, adoption as sons, if, um, predestining us to be conformed into the image of his son, if all of those spiritual blessings are given by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ in eternity, then when are those blessings conferred upon the believer in time? When does that happen? Having been decreed in eternity, they are conferred in time when that reckoned union, when that considered union becomes a realized and actualized reality. Is that at our baptism? No. All of those blessings are conferred upon faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. All of those blessings are conferred upon the sinner when the sinner puts faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All of those blessings that are considered in, in our identification with Jesus Christ in eternity are conferred upon the believer in time, realized, actualized, when the believer puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3, drop down to verse 13. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Thank you, Lord. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now he did this, verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic promise, Abrahamic covenant, you could say. The Abrahamic, those promises of God. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. In their union with Christ Jesus. Do you see? That blessing doesn't come upon the Gentiles apart from Jesus Christ. Right? That blessing comes upon the Gentiles in their union with Jesus Christ. So that, verse 14, we might receive the promise of the Spirit through our baptism. Is that what it says? No, through what? Through faith. We receive the promises through faith. That blessing is given by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ and only by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, only by that. So then, when or how did we receive that promise? Did we receive the promise through baptism? No. We received the promise through faith. You see how, how a misinterpretation of an important text of scripture confuses the whole shoot and match, right? Makes a mess of the whole thing. Makes a mess of the whole thing. These things, these blessings are not conferred upon the sinner at their baptism. Blessings are conferred upon the sinner at faith, at the moment of their faith. Look at verse 26. 
Verse 26, for you are all sons of God. What did Ephesians chapter 1 say? We were predestined to adoption as sons. When did that predestining work or that decree of God take place? It took place in eternity. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You were predestined to adoption as sons before time began. Here in verse 26, you were all sons of God now. And when was that blessing conferred upon the sinner? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You were all sons of God through your baptism? Nope. Through faith. Ephesians 1 says we were predestined in eternity before time began. That predestining work of God actualized or realized in time through the believer's faith. Verse 27. For as, and this is, listen, this sounds exactly like Romans 6, doesn't it? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Same words, I'll submit to you, same meaning. Sounds exactly like Romans 6. Baptism symbolizes that we have put on Christ. Baptism is a symbol that the sinner has put on Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that the sons of God are those who have put on Christ. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? Right? Sons of God are those who have put on Christ. And he's speaking of our spiritual union there with Jesus Christ. We are, when we put on Christ, we're spiritually united to Christ. We um, are cloaked in him, as it were. Well, when do we become sons of God? Look at the text, verse 26. When do we become sons of God? We become sons of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are sons of God through faith. So just like in Romans 6, Paul speaks of baptism then as symbolizing or as signifying present spiritual realities. Listen, as many of you as were baptized, don't you know that your baptism symbolizes or signifies that you've put on Christ? You see what Paul is saying? That's what Paul is saying. Don't you realize the, the spiritual realities that your own baptism represents? Your own baptism represents the fact that you have been united to Christ. You have put on Christ. And if you have put on Christ, you are sons of God. When were you sons of God? You were sons of God through faith. When you put your faith in him, you became adopted into his household. Praise God, right? Not too confusing, is it? <laughs> through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 28. Both of these things are, are symbolized by baptism. They are not effected by baptism. Do you see? As somehow going under the water, coming out of the water, it affects God's gift of these spiritual blessings. It's not, what, not what's happening here, right? Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in union with Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, are you Christ through baptism? No. <laughs> and if you are Christ through faith, then you are Abraham's seed. How are you Abraham's seed? Through faith. And if Abraham's seed, heirs, meaning that you are sons according to the promise. How did you become a son? Through faith. Through the faith of Abraham. They did not become Abraham's seed through baptism. They did not become sons of God through baptism. They were not united to Christ through baptism. Our union or our identification with Christ, considered by God in eternity, is realized in time, has now come to pass in time through the means of faith. What does it mean for one who does not have faith? These spiritual blessings are not conferred upon them. Why? Because these spiritual blessings are conferred upon a believer's faith. What about that infant? I believe that children can be genuinely saved. That children can put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They can turn, turn from their sin. They can understand the gospel, right? They can be genuinely and soundly converted. An infant who has no capacity for faith by saying that these blessings are conferred upon them in their baptism is to mishandle the text of scripture and to twist it many times to someone's own destruction. They grow up believing, grow up believing that all of these blessings are theirs by virtue of their baptism into the covenant community. 
And there's a de-emphasizing on the necessity for conversion. If you grew up Roman Catholic, if you grew up Roman Catholic, tell me the truth, many of you have, this is confusing. It's confusing, these things, right? Because twisting the clear meaning or intent of the text of Scripture. What does Paul mean then? Think with me. What does Paul mean by Romans chapter 6, verse 3? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Hang in there with me. He does not, he obviously does not mean that our water baptism brought us into union with Jesus Christ. He does not mean that our water baptism was the means through which all these spiritual blessings were conferred upon us. It's not what he's talking about. That union was effectual in eternity, and what was effectual in eternity was actualized or realized in the time and in the moment when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. How else then should we translate that little Greek word, ace? It should not be translated into. It should be translated with reference to. With reference to. Now think with me. As many of us as were baptized with reference to our union to Jesus Christ, we were baptized with reference to his death. Baptism is not the act that united us to Christ, but baptism is an act that is in reference to that union. Baptism refers to that union. Do you see? Baptism symbolizes or signifies that that inward spiritual reality that is true of a genuine believer through his faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes or signifies those spiritual realities that are conferred upon a sinner through his faith in Jesus Christ. What is the meaning? What is the meaning of baptism? Baptism refers to our union with Christ and all those spiritual inward realities given by virtue of that union and appropriated by the believer through his faith. Baptism then is a symbol. It is a symbol of a life-changing life-transforming union with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes, what baptism signifies. That's what baptism is. As much as baptism symbolizes our union with Jesus Christ, that union symbolized in baptism involves a very cogent illustration of his death to sin. Baptism illustrates the Lord's death to sin And baptism illustrates our death to sin in him, doesn't it? Such that when you were baptized as a believer, you were publicly professing through your baptism, you were publicly professing to be in union with Jesus Christ, and not simply in union with Jesus Christ in life, but you were professing to be in union with Jesus Christ through his death. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Your baptism refers not merely to union with Christ. Your baptism refers to union with Christ in his death. And the death that he, full circle now, full circle, the death that he died to sin, you are professing through your baptism to have died to sin with him. And that through your faith in him. The death that he died to sin you are professing to have died to sin in union with him. When you were baptized with reference to Jesus Christ, you were baptized with reference to his death. Do you see? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid. Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live one minute longer in it? In other words, to make Paul's argument, in our union with Christ... We have died to sin because he died to sin. In our union with Christ, we have been freed from sin's dominion. In our union with Christ, we have been freed from our slavery to sin. The death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all of us. And that will absolutely change how we live in union with Jesus Christ. It's going to change how you live. It's a fact, do you see? It's not a suggestion. By God's grace... The death that he died, he died to sin once for all of us who have put faith in Christ. And if you've put faith in Christ, you've been united to Christ. And if you're united to Christ, then you died to sin too. And the fact that you died to sin then in him means that you can't live in sin any longer. That's not a you shouldn't. That's a you won't, right? It's a reality of God's grace. We're not divorcing grace from his power. 
If you've been saved by God, then you've been saved in the way that God has determined to save sinners. He has put his spirit within you and he will cause you to walk in his statutes and you will keep his judgments and do them. It's a promise of God. You are not under sin's dominion any longer. With our baptism, we made a public profession that these things are true. When I was baptism, I said that these things are true of me. It's a profession of our faith, right? It's a faith, the issue of faith. I said these things are true of me. When you were baptized, if you were baptized and you had a biblical baptism, uh, you understand some of these things, you were saying, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, these things are true of me. I profess that I have died to sin. I publicly profess that in my baptism, right? I profess my commitment now to live a new life in him. Verse four, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death or with reference to his death so that picturing that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, even so, we also now should walk in newness of life. What does that mean? We're going to look at this text, the rest of this text next, next week. Your life is not going to be the same. Your life is not going to be the same. By virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you have died to the dominion of sin. Your life will change. You may say to yourself, well, you know, I grew up. I just never really did bad things. You may have been outwardly moral, but inwardly a devil. Our thoughts, our affections as a lost person are not geared toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Your indifference as a lost person, listen to me, listen. Your indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ is contempt for his death for sinners. He died that you might be set free from the bondage of sin, might be forgiven of your sin, might be a child of God. He died to secure that and you continue to live in indifference toward the death of the Lord of glory. That shows incredible, incredible contempt. It shows hatred. That shows the depravity of your own heart. You know you know that the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners and you continue to live in indifference toward him, in indifference toward his word, in indifference toward his law. And it's not indifference, it's hostility. I'm going to live for myself no matter how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. And you continue to live in rebellion against Jesus Christ, in rebellion against God's law, in rebellion against God who created you for his glory, made in his image to live exclusively for him. And yet your whole life, you've lived exclusively for yourself. That's not indifference. That's not mere neglect. That's hostility. That's rebellion. And you know it to be true. You know it to be true. Paul is addressing present conduct in the life of a believer and he does that by pointing them back to a spiritual reality i love the way that the scripture does that right he reminds us of spiritual truths he reminds us reminds us of these great and glorious realities secured for us by the person and work of the lord of glory he reminds us of those realities and then says look look how that should impact the way that we think the way that we believe and the way that we live. Here's the assertion of truth. Listen, for the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. There's the assertion of truth. Here's the assertion of our faith. Likewise, verse 11, you also then reckon, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. If Christ died for me, and he died to sin, to sin, to break the power of sin. If he did that for me, then I reckon myself now to be dead indeed to sin. God help me. God help me. I don't want to live not one minute more in it. It's absurd to think that I could live my life irrespective of that sacrifice 
indifferent to that sacrifice, live my life in my sin one minute longer. Lord Jesus Christ, help me. Right, Paul in Romans 7, who will save me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? Praise God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the assertion of our faith. Verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's how we live and act then. We have the assertion of truth, verse 10. There's the assertion of our faith. I'm reckoning myself, Lord, by faith, reckoning myself to be dead, dead indeed to sin. Here's how we live, verse 12. According to that truth, according to that profession, verse 12, therefore, I will not let sin reign in my mortal body. I will not let sin reign in my mortal body that I should obey it in its lusts. By faith in you, Lord, I will fight sin tooth and nail, right? Pluck out and cut off. It would be better for you to enter glory maimed than to enter hell with both your hands or both your eyes. Indwelling sin will seek to exercise its former dominion over you, brother. Indwelling sin will seek to exert its influence over you, sister. That other principle in your members will seek to, to exert a carnal influence. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to fight it. Do not allow it. Reckon yourselves dead to the power of indwelling sin. Do not let it reign in your mortal body. Do you see how practical, practical this good doctrine is? Right? How practical it is. Do not allow it. Consider yourself dead to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Put to death the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live and you sow to the flesh, you'll die. You'll perish in hell. Verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't do it, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I just don't see myself as being all that bad. You're not reading your Bible then. Right? That's the truth. You don't see yourself the way that God sees you. You need to go to the text of Scripture and inform your understanding. Inform your understanding. When you go to the text of scripture and you see what God says about you, you will see that you are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, naked, bankrupt before God. You'll begin to see the unrighteousness that dwells within your own heart, the unrighteousness that dwells within your own mind. You'll begin to see your sin more the way that God sees your sin. And when you see that, your response should be in faith, faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, help me. Help me. And he will. My brother and I talk about uh, the, the account of the leper. Um, lepers weren't touched in the first century. Uh, they were unclean. And lepers were outcasts of society. Lord Jesus Christ came walking through one day, a leper on the side of the road. And he reached out his hand a leprous hand. And he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the Lord touched him and said, I'm willing. Be cleansed, right? That's the Lord that we serve. The Lord that if you will go to him in faith, seeing yourself as the leper, that's necessity, right? God did not come to call those who are well but sinners to repentance. You see yourself as the leper and you reach out your leprous, sin-stained hand to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and Jesus Christ will respond to you. I'm willing. Glory be to him forever. Verse five. And we fight, brothers and sisters, until the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. And we'll rejoice, absolutely rejoice one day when that fight will finally come to an end. Verse five, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly, absolutely, without a doubt, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
pray for that day to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we exult in these glorious blessings, the truth of the salvation to which we've been delivered. We exult, we revel in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who has died to sin once for all of us who've put our faith and trust in him. We praise you, Lord, that you have condescended in grace. You didn't have to. It wasn't something that you needed to do or were compelled to do. But simply in grace, you condescended to reveal these things to us and to make provision for our sin and the person and work of your own son, that through his death, through him becoming sin for us, we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you for that glorious blessing. Lord, help us to consider these things, to meditate on these things, to understand them rightly, so that rightly we may understand how we are to live for you. Uh, how we are to appropriate these glorious blessings to the praise of your glorious grace. Thank you for our time in your text. Uh, Thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.